Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to this episode of the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Cheryl Scully. Cheryl was the city manager of San Antonio from 2005 until 2019. Under her tenure, there are so many accomplishments that we're going to discuss a lot about today. Uh, But for most of us who just kind of look around, the Henry B. Convention Center being redone into what it is today, I mean, our mission trail, the mission's becoming a World Heritage Site. Um, Some of the the behind-the-scenes things uh, include how our government works and our new contracts for our police and fire unions. She discusses in her book a lot of these accomplishments. We're here to talk to her about some of those accomplishments discussed in her book and her new book, Greedy Bastards, One City's Texas-Sized Struggle to Avoid a Financial Crisis. Cheryl, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Justin. I'm happy to be with you. Well, before we got going, I made sure that we could see some of the books uh, behind you on the shelf so that people can know (laughs) that this is a book tour and I'm part of your book tour today. Well, thank you for doing that. Uh, And this morning, I learned that uh, I just made the Amazon bestseller list. So I'm excited. That's awesome. And now you're going to be scrolling through and paying attention for reviews as they come in? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll, we'll get a few of those. Okay. So I start all these with a little bit of background information. Um, everybody knows who you were and are, but I don't know how many people know much about you. I learned a lot about you in the, uh, in the book. And unfortunately for a lot of us, I moved here in 07, a lot of what we heard about you and learned about you was had to do with the public union fight. And there was a lot of information put out about you, which was, I think a little bit unfair, obviously. Um, but Let's give a little bit of background to who you are. You came from Phoenix, Arizona. What was your experience with San Antonio prior to coming out here to work as a city manager? Uh, So I was uh, the assistant city manager in the number two position in the city of Phoenix. Uh, I worked there for 16 years uh, and uh, watched and was a part of that city growing and doubling in size and expanding. We worked on major uh, major initiatives for that for that fast growing city. Uh, before that, I was city manager of Kalamazoo, Michigan. I actually grew up in the Chicago area, went to school in Indiana, and uh, my first job out of college was with the city of Kalamazoo, Michigan. My husband Mike is from Kalamazoo, and our children were born there. Um, I worked for that city for a total of fifteen years. Uh, I wasn't born a city manager, although I am the oldest of seven children. Uh, My siblings accuse me of trying to uh, city manage the family. Uh, But uh, I worked, I started in a research position and then uh, joined the city manager's office as an assistant uh, city manager and worked there the last five years as city manager and then was recruited to Phoenix. Uh, We'd never been there, but our kids were preschool age. It was good timing to move across the country, take on that new challenge. So we did. I never thought I'd leave Phoenix. I was in the number two position and hoped to become the city manager when that manager left. Uh, But then San Antonio came knocking. I did turn down the position the first time it was offered in 2005. Uh, Mayor Garza was mayor at the time and they were going through an election. Um, And uh, after the election, Mayor Hardberger was elected. He contacted me um, and convinced me to come to San Antonio. So I did, I was appointed uh, in the summer of 2005. Uh, The hurricane Katrina hit the coast uh, the following week, uh, which perhaps was an omen as to uh, the kind of experience I'd have in San Antonio. Uh, But I signed a two-year contract, and uh, it was um, a really great experience to work with Mayor Hardberger. He's he's a wonderful man. He had never been on the city council. And I think for both of us, me being not from San Antonio, being new, the council was looking for an outsider to come in and improve the professionalism of uh, the city government here and develop some big bond programs and improve their service delivery to the community. So um, here I am uh, 15 years later, I just retired from city management 
uh, a year ago. That's after 45 years in public management, but it, it's been a great ride and I've loved working in San Antonio. Well, you make a joke in your book that uh, you speak very highly of, of Phil Hardberger, who's been nothing but a nice man every time I've met him. He's he's a, a previously a lawyer in another life like I am as well. Uh, but you made a joke that he did more courting you than his own wife. I mean, it wasn't just a he convinced you. There was a lot of back and forth before you finally decided to come over. And then it sounds like baptism by fire straight into Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, well, that's pretty much the case. Actually, his wife uh, introduced me once at an event. And she is the one who said that, heck, he spent more time courting her than he did me for my hand in marriage. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Linda is a wonderful person. And she and Phil and Mike and I have become close family friends. They're, they are wonderful people. Well, good. I'm hoping to get him on the show because he's got some just wild stories about his adventure stuff he's done. I ask everybody yep. on the show, what are some of your favorite hidden gems in San Antonio? You probably know the city better than almost anybody at this point. What are some of the things in the city that you think maybe don't get enough attention or, or people should go check out? Yeah, well, uh, let me say that uh, you would ask me earlier about uh, the Where I Live column uh, that I, I wrote during the uh, COVID shelter-in-place Yeah. Uh, situation this spring. And I wrote it because as someone who lives on the Riverwalk, uh, we live downtown and uh, it was just so exciting for me to see more people coming to the Riverwalk and using it for exercising. When we first moved here and I'm a, uh, an old marathon runner, uh, I would go out and run in different parts of the community and I would rarely see anyone out running in the community. And there are so many wonderful places now to run in San Antonio. Uh, the Riverwalk is full of people walking, running, strollers, bicycles, uh, no scooters. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, there are even people kayaking um, on the river. And now the extension to the south uh, through uh, the Mission Reach um, all the way to Mission Espada is just, it's gorgeous and beautiful. So I encourage people to take advantage of it to even drive to one of the locations and you can cycle, run, walk the entire length of the mission reach without crossing a street. And likewise to the North, I worked with uh, Mayor Hardberger uh, and others on the mission reach extension to the North that goes all the way to Brackenridge Park. It's yeah. beautiful as well. Um, so those, there are some great spots, Hardberger park. If people haven't been there, uh, there's a gigantic dog area, uh, as well for dog long lovers, but great places to, to run there. Government Canyon for running is uh, spectacular and, and beautiful. So lots of places to get out and about, uh, in the community. Yeah. There's portions. I think I've done all of the river walk and the mission reach there's, but there's that weird sort of chunk between where you live and King William that I've never, I've never done. And last show, that was somebody's hidden gem that I needed to go do that chunk. So I learned something oh, every beautiful. time I ask somebody. Yes, it is. It is beautiful. Uh, just short. What do you, what are you doing now? What, I know you're a consultant, but what does that mean? And what are you working on? Mm. So, yeah, I'm working a, a little bit on consulting, not a whole lot um, with strategic partnerships. Uh, they're out of uh, Austin. Mary Scott Neighbors uh, is the CEO of that organization. And I help them think through with companies that are interested in doing business with cities, uh, not San Antonio, uh, because I don't want to bother my, my staff there, uh, but cities around the state that are looking um, for help on how to improve different systems and companies that have products that can help them. I've, I've been helping them kind of think through some of those issues and, and how to put those proposals uh, together and those strategies. But mostly uh, what I've been doing is working on my book this past year. Um, I've, I'm also probably overcommitted on my nonprofit work. Uh, I, I did uh, join the Texas 2036 board that's chaired by Tom Luce and Margaret Spellings, the former education secretary is the CEO. We're working on the bicentennial 2036 for the state of Texas. What do we want it to be in that year? And what areas uh, does the state need to improve in terms of education, government performance, healthcare, environment, transportation and infrastructure, business development? Um, what do we need to do to be better? And that's been an ex exciting statewide project 
here locally, I'm still involved with the United Way, uh, working on the uh, international piano competition for uh, musical bridges around the world. Uh, I'm also working on the campaign for the renewal of the pre-K for SA program. Some of your listeners may recall that uh, the voters approved that program in 2012. We implemented that program successfully. We have four schools that educate 2,000 four-year-olds annually and and provide professional development for early educators throughout the city and all the school districts. Uh, And also give grants to private schools as well as public schools to help them expand their early childhood education. Um, We have outside people that evaluate its success. It's proven to be very effective for families and it's free to the lowest income families in the community. So educationally, it's important to San Antonio more so than ever now through COVID and that's on the ballot for renewal November 3rd. So I'm, I'm busy working on that effort. Well, you make a comment in your book about how you're a marathon runner and you're in for the long haul. And it sounds like you haven't slowed down really any since you've uh, retired. (laughs) Not really. Yeah, not really. Uh, Full days. So before we got started, I said, you're my third anchovy. Uh, The other two actually have commented on, on this post on Facebook already. Um, You also auctioned off your great sashes full of medals uh, for, for charities after you retired. What are your favorite Fiesta events? Mm. Well, my favorite is Corneation. I uh, (laughs) confess I was uh, King Anchovy in 2009 uh, at the urging of my friends, uh, Tony Bradfield and Dr. Kevin Black and others. And uh, it was a great experience, Uh, probably the most fun I've had since I've been in San Antonio. Uh, My husband, Mike, managed the green room. And uh, I want to know I want to know what that means. Uh-huh. Well, uh, liquid, liquid refreshment before and okay. at intermission and between shows, but it was a great, great time. Uh, those who have participated know it's a lot of fun. And we raised more than $150,000 for the AIDS Foundation that year. Uh, so it's, uh, it was a great experience, had a lot of fun. And all my sashes, and there were hundreds and hundreds of medals, and uh, we did auction those at my uh, retirement event. And uh, from the proceeds from that event, uh, the auctioning of the Fiesta items uh, and my own $10,000 contribution, we donated a total of $40,000 to the Young Women's Leadership Academy at San Antonio Independent School District uh, to help uh, those girls uh, go off to college. So very very excited to have done that. That's and I know you said that you you bid on one of the sashes, but you didn't get it. You didn't bid enough money. Well, there was an online bidding process, and I think I just didn't pay attention. Like at the at the you know at the time, I really needed to. Okay. All so, right. So we're going to get into the book, but um, what were you? What was your outfit for uh, corneation? Oh boy. Well, it was a, you've probably seen it. That's why you're asking. It was a one piece, uh, red wonder woman, Superwoman uh, outfit with a big, uh, Royal blue Cape, uh, red leather boots that laced up above my knees. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, definitely out of character for me, but appropriate uh, for corneation but very appropriate for corneation. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. And Phil Hardberger, Mayor Hardberger, even uh, did uh, a voiceover as part of the skit uh, for my opening number. Well, good for him. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, I could talk to you about San Antonio for a whole show, but I want to start talking about your book. Um, I learned a lot about your book. and, And like I said at the start, I think my first knowledge or kind of seeing you in the public eye other than articles in the Rivard Report or, or the Express was this, this deluge of, of bad publicity and, and, and ads and Facebook stuff about you during the police negotiations. So I learned a lot about sort of that process through your book, but let's just start generally. San Antonio has a different form of city government than a lot of cities. Can you kind of explain how we run our city different than other cities? So we have a council manager form of government that was adopted uh, by the residents of the community by city charter in 1951. And what that means is that the mayor and council members who are elected, and we have 11 elected officials, the mayor is elected at large, 
And then we have 10 single member districts so that all areas of the city are represented. That happened actually the single member districts in the 1970s, but um, they serve as the policy directors or the board of directors okay. for the municipal corporation. And they hire a CEO to run the business of city local government at their, at their direction. And so the city manager functions in that way. I'm responsible to hire and fire um, all city employees. And we have a total of 13,000 city wow. employees. So uh, what they asked me to do when I was recruited here was to assess talent, make changes, get the financial house in order. I'm not sure they understood uh, the condition uh, of the city government when I was recruited here in 2005, but it definitely needed a lot of improvement. And so the city manager functions as the CEO of the municipal corporation uh, to run the business, to hire, to hire staff. And, and the alternative to that, yeah, you just clicked off for a second. We're back. The alternative to that's just a regular city manager, I mean, a city council and mayor where the mayor serves the role of the CEO? Well, in a strong mayor form of government, let's take Houston. Okay. Uh, Sylvester Turner is the mayor. He's also the chief executive. So the mayor is appointing department heads and, uh, and staff in that case. Um, the council manager plan is what's considered a professional local government system. And so I'm not hiring friends of elected officials. Sure. There's no political patronage system. I'm trying to hire the best and the brightest from the community as well as nationally to take us uh, to uh, provide the best service for the residents of the community. Um, Chief Bill McManus was one of the first people I recruited to San Antonio. I considered inside, internal candidates, but in the end, um, thought that he would be the best. And I think most residents agree he's done an outstanding job uh, as chief of our police department. And he tried to leave at some point and just had to come back, it, it sounds like. He did. You know, <laughs> he went to uh, CPS for about nine months. I told him. I thought that uh, he was too much a cop's cop and that he would miss uh, that adren adrenaline rush uh, constantly. And sure enough, he called me that summer and said, okay, you were right. I want to come back. <laughs> and I was able to hire him twice. Yeah, that was, I was surprised. <laughs> um, in the council manager form, Phoenix is the largest city. Is San Antonio the second largest city who has that sort of structure? Yes, we are. We're the second largest. Dallas is the third okay. largest. Is that trending and, one way or another nationally? Are more cities moving to the council manager or is everybody kind of stuck in their ways at this point? Well, it's uh, it's the most popular form of government nationally, more so uh, in the medium and smaller size cities. So there aren't as many large cities. So if you think about New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Houston, uh, those are strong mayor form of government uh, cities, but Phoenix, San Antonio, Dallas, Austin, Corpus Christi, El Paso here in the state um, are our council manager form of government. And I'm a huge advocate for professionalism. And as I, I have discussed with the mayors I've worked with here, and I worked with four different mayors during my, my tenure here and a total of 47 different elected officials. There's so much turnover that you need professional management for the continuity. Um, and yet we take the policy direction from the elected officials, but because we have experience at delivering those services and understand what it takes to recruit, to manage and to service deliver in those specific fields, then if you think about it, we're a very diversified corporation we do everything from policing to firefighting to emergency medical services to building roads to maintaining parks to running the libraries, public health departments, social services, municipal court, and then all the back of house 
yeah. uh, that that goes with uh, those kinds of major corporations. And there's so some involvement. I'm an, with, I'm an advocate for professional city management. And then we have even more so we have some involvement with our water and our electric that a lot of cities don't deal with. I mean, would that be that's fair to say? Tr- that's true. Yes. yes, we own uh, as a city, city of San Antonio owns the San Antonio water system and uh, owns CPS energy. Okay. And so if if CPS Energy were a private utility, they'd be paying taxes uh, to the city. They don't pay taxes to the city, and instead, the city is entitled to 14% of gross revenue. Huh. And that represents about 30% of the city's general fund budget. So wow. it's an important part. And then the city manager um, has charter responsibility to make recommendations on their rates. And we have a division within our finance department that actually studies and works with both utilities, water and energy, uh, to discuss what their needs are. And we collectively make recommendations then to city council that decides the rates for both of the utilities. So running a municipal corporation uh, is a big and complicated job. And it, it takes someone who has experience uh, at doing that and understands the fundament- fundamentals and also can work within a political environment. Sure. I mean, you talk about being a juggler. I mean, now we're starting to get some sort of, you know, context to that. I think it's important to understand how the city manager is a CEO in the context of your book. So let's talk about your book. What was the reason for writing the book? Well, um, I, you know, for all the uh, social media coverage uh, that there was about the public safety challenge that we had, that is uh, remodeling those 1988 contracts. I I felt as though the main point of that was largely still misunderstood. We did this for the residents of the community. I had done uh, some analysis financially with my team to show that left unattended, if we let those 1988 contracts Uh, continue as they were, they were crowding out other public services, our street maintenance, parks, libraries, all of those other things that we do as a city because their expenses were growing faster than our general fund revenue. So we did what was somewhat academic, but an analysis to show when would public safety become 100% of the general fund? When would we turn off the street lights, not mow another park, not repair another pothole uh, or any of those other services that we do, close all the senior centers, close all the libraries. And it was 2031. And it was to say that we need to adjust course, remodel the business model and to adjust those contracts while still providing a fair salary and wage and benefit package for our public safety personnel. It's a core business of the city and I highly regard their work but it also has to be affordable to the taxpayer. So I thought it was important uh, to also uh, set the record straight. Here's why we did this. And we were successful. We did get to remodel those contracts. I just didn't know it was going to take six years uh, to get to conclusion. I I knew it would be hard. I thought we could get it done within about two years. Uh, Instead, it took uh, much longer. So the report talks about why I was, or my book talks about why I was recruited here, um, what I faced uh, when I got here. And I I tell some stories about some of the things uh, that happened and then talks about taking on the challenge of these public safety unions. I I have to say it was a hardball experience uh, trying to change what had been in place for 25 years when we started this process back in 2014 uh, was was difficult. And I think the title of the book reflects that. But I can't take credit for the title. <laughs> We're going to get there in a second. I want to make sure people understand that your book is, I expected it to be a lot more just about the union fights. But I mean, you walk through how when you came in, you were given a list of 300 people who were misusing their computers, and it was just sort of a, a, you walked through sort of all of the changes you had to make from internet use policies to personnel policies, ethics reform. I mean, they had bought a big contract for financial reporting and it wasn't being used. Corruption. 
one thing that really stuck out to me is when you got into the city manager position, you realized that a lot of people were living under the poverty level by which they were entitled to government benefits and people were foregoing some benefits so that they could get government benefits. So we had full-time government workers working for the city who were qualifying for federal you know, welfare benefits or welfare type benefits. And, and talk to me about how you, you did an analysis to make sure that they had a living wage and you had to make some changes on that. Well, in, in the first six months um, in that I was city manager, and this happened in early 2006, um, I, as I studied the city's financials, and you mentioned financials, yes, um, I couldn't get a financial report from the finance department for the first nine months I was here. Um, I almost quit over that, but uh, instead we went to work to get that corrected and we did and became one of the best financially managed cities in the country, earning a AAA general obligation bond rating from all three of the major rating agencies. But uh, I also in that process of uh, going through our city financials found that we had 900 city employees earning below the federal living wage. And they were opting out of healthcare from the city and then um, joining the state subsidized uh, system, the CHIP system. And um, I, I thought that was atrocious, atrocious. And so we, I just moved everybody up. I moved them up to the minimum federal living wage, um, required all the employees to be on the city's uh, program um, and not on public assistance. And uh, over time, um, and in large part driven by city council members who felt we needed to move up the living wage uh, to eventually get to $15 an hour, we developed a plan to be able to do that in small amounts over time. And now the least a city employee earns is $15 an hour. Is that tagged to anything? I mean, is it going to automatically increase as, as cost of living increases or will it have to be a vote each time? No, it would have to be voted at this point because 15 is still more than the federal living wage amount. So it's above that. But if you think about it, we have uh, city employees, families of four living on um, that type yeah. of wage, which is about 30,000 a year. Uh, so that's, that's, still, that's still tough, but I'm, I'm proud of the fact that uh, we were able to do that for our city workers. And it was also about attracting and becoming an employer of choice. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the book that we don't want to be the last resort for someone, oh, I'll go take a job with the city. They don't pay well, but I'll go work there. We want to be an employer of choice to take care of our employees, to have them participate, uh, and why we're doing what we're doing for the residents of the community uh, and uh, treat them treat them fairly. So, uh, you know, um, I think we've, we're turning it around. There's still work to do, but uh, we've made it better for sure. And I own and run a small business and I got a lot out of reading your book and sort of the way you went about uh, training and retaining and, and sort of growing talent within your own organization. I think Eric Walsh said that, that the way you did it and went about it was similar to the Popovich uh, and the Spurs organization that y'all tried to bring in good talent, but then also train them and make them better as you went on. So that when you left, you had a really good talent pool. And I found a lot of that really useful just for a small business owner. Um, did you learn that sort of through schooling or was that a Phoenix thing or was that, you know, Cheryl Scully? Well, I, I think throughout my career, I, I strongly believe in growing people within the organization to take on greater responsibility, uh, identifying them and giving them a chance to grow, but you need to help them. Let's take, for example, um, a crew leader in a maintenance area within the city organization. Perhaps the best uh, crew member is the person who gets selected to be uh, the supervisor but they don't have any training about how to supervise, how to manage uh, time and sick leave and someone who's uh, making mistakes and disciplinary processes and uh, data to manage how well they're doing, that is productivity analyses. And so we developed a first line supervisory academy so that those who were the best workers in a group 
could also learn how to supervise the crew that they were now in charge of. And, and that's at all levels of the organization, even for professional staff who may be then promoted to supervise a group of planners or a group of engineers. How do you manage uh, people? Because we spend most of our time managing people uh, to get the productivity we need to be most effective. Um, I also found uh, that at the executive level, we really didn't have a deep bench. Um, there were good people within the organization, but they weren't in the right seats on the bus, as Jim Collins, a uh, famous author, would say. And, and so I moved people around into positions that they were best suited for and identified people within the organization like Eric Walsh like Maria Villa Gomez, like Ben Gorzel and Rod Sanchez uh, to move into positions where they could be most effective and grow. Uh, and so it was a combination of recruiting from the outside in the areas where we didn't have internal talent to take on uh, specific departments and assignments but also working within the organization to grow. When I was recruited, they wouldn't consider someone inside the organization. That was a red flag to me. So I, I knew from the beginning that my job in part would also be about developing staff so that when I chose to retire, uh, that, they, that they, the council at the time had choices. Um, there were a variety of people that could become the city manager. And I'm proud to say that all six of my deputy and assistant sorry about that all go. six of my deputy and assistant city managers applied for the job were interviewed and they selected uh, eric at my deputy as my successor so uh that's that's exciting to me and 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 gives me a sense of accomplishment and also the city manager in dallas is one of my former assistant mm. Uh, city managers, T.C. Brodnax and Peter Zanoni, another one of my deputies is now city manager in Corpus Christi and Penny Post Oak per Ferguson, uh, an assistant city manager is now the county manager in Johnson County, Kansas. So wow. um, there are uh, San Antonio uh, members of the executive team who are now out there as city managers elsewhere around the country. And that's uh, that makes me proud as well. Like Pop's coaching staff, they've gone out everywhere as well. And that's what Eric said. I don't know if I deserve uh, that comparison, but I'll take it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. So I want to talk to you about the union contract. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things in, in your book that were really um, sort of surprising to me, obviously. I mean, I knew there was an issue with sort of the long-term viability of the costs of it. Talk about when you came into the position, um, you came into a position after you had turned it down, long time courting. Uh, based on your book, it sounds like there had been some council members who had been indicted prior to you coming over. So things were a little bit of a, uh, a storm maybe to walk into. And then at some point people said, hey, you're going to have to start taking a look at this contract. Was it a fire off in the distance or was it coming up pretty quick? Well, actually, they were in um, <clears throat> negotiations with police and fire when I was hired, but I had so many figurative fires mm -hmm. uh, to put out that I could not devote my entire attention to that uh, in those initial months. Um, and so those contracts were wrapped up and they were coming due then in 2009. By 2009, I had a pretty good handle on the city organization and I knew we needed change. Um, the healthcare benefits, and you, you'll understand this, uh, we were covering um, almost 100% of healthcare for our uniform personnel, as well as uh, their spouses yeah. and dependents. And um, in 2014, when we were finally taking this on as a challenge, that number or the cost to the city had grown to $20,000 per uniform. And we have 44,000 uniforms, so $20,000 per uniform. When I talk with business groups about that uh, to explain why we were taking on this challenge to remodel, and it wasn't about just cut their benefits. It was about how do we provide a consumer-driven healthcare plan with um, higher high deductibles, but you know for those to choose. And if you wanted the legacy plan, then you paid a premium 
for your dependents, we still cover 100% for the police officer and the firefighter. Which is uh, almost unheard of anymore. under control. What? I said that's almost unheard of anymore in a lot of places for that legacy plan to be funded 100%. Because it was a well, Cadillac plan. Yeah, and it, it's 25 years old. And so I'm not passing judgment on what was decided back in 1988. I wasn't here then. But um, it's not affordable today, and it's clearly not sustainable. It will bankrupt the city. In fact, most business people, when I'd explain this would say, gosh, I'll be, I'd be bankrupt if I provided that. Well, that's my point. Um, and, and so I wanted to take it on into. I apologize for some reason, my, my cell phone is coming through on my iPad. Oh. Not, it doesn't you know, normally do that. Yeah. Probably because I have my phone turned off. We are very popular right now. Highest seller, yeah. you know, top selling on Amazon. It's going to make phone ring. <laughs> um, so I wanted to take it on in 2009. Um, the mayor and council were reluctant, in part, I believe, because the unions in the past had um, intimidated them by saying, if, if we don't get what we want, we'll run a candidate against you. And I'm simplifying it, but that's in essence what had happened over the years. Um, so they said, you can try. We understand why you think it's necessary to do this, uh, but um, you're pretty much on your own at, at doing it. And of course, the unions went around me to the council and eventually the council said, just settle it, give them what they want. But at the time, um, Mayor Castro was just newly elected as mayor. Phil Hardberger had been termed out. He could only serve four years. And um, Mayor Castro said, I have some initiatives I'd like to work on that are very important first, but, uh, you know, I commit to you that we'll come back to this and, and work on it. So uh, the unions uh, had five year con had a five year contract and uh, that was that would expire in 2014. So in 2013, um, I sat down with the mayor, uh, my team and I, my finance and budget director and I sat down with the mayor and said, Here's the business case for taking this on and making change. And Mayor Castro agreed and supported um, our taking this on and said, okay, city manager, I want you out front on this issue and uh, we'll, we'll stay together as a council. And I discussed it with the mayor and council. They all agreed we should do this. And we did. Um, the unions liked me until then. <laughs> but once we took this on, um, yeah, that, that whole thing changed. And they really tried to portray what we were doing as anti-police. I'm not anti-police. I'm not anti-fire. It is our core business, as I said. And uh, it's an important part of what we do. But it has to be affordable to the taxpayers. So we did this for the community. We stayed the course. Uh, we did mediate a settlement, of course, with the um, police union in 2016, and then an arbitrator made the final decision of what we had recommended uh, just in February of this year. That arbitration process started a year ago um, after the unions ran a candidate against Mayor Nirenberg, hoping that, that their candidate uh, would win and convince the council members to give them what they wanted. Um, Fortunately, he lost, and uh, so uh, it went. They filed for binding arbitration, and uh, it didn't work out too well for them. But in total, what's most important is that um, the city is saving one hundred more than one hundred and fifty million dollars just during the five-year term of these two contracts uh, with what we were uh, able to do. And then those are changes long-term for the city. And, and your book does a good job of it. This wasn't willy nilly. There was a lot of analysis that went into it. You walk through the medical costs were basically unsustainable over the long term. They had a legal defense fund that was, it almost sounds like it was being used as a slush fund with very little oversight. But on top of that, it sounds like there was instances of, of abuse where people were using the free legal fees to have family fights on the taxpayer dollar. There's discipline issues, the Me Too clause. Um, and then you get into some of the more strange stuff, the 100% tuition reimbursement where people were going back and getting degrees for things that had nothing to do with their job. Uh, and there was kind of no oversight on that. And then 
cops were being given a bonus for having the certificate that they had to have to be an officer. So there was a lot of strange pay um, sort of benefits and, and awards worked into these contracts that once you started really parsing apart, you realized this is unsustainable long-term, but there are also just some things that don't make sense from an equity standpoint. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, um, very much so. And the oversight, we had no authority on oversight because the collective bargaining agreement provided for example, the legal fund that uh, to pay for <clears throat> police and fire officers uh, wills, estate planning, um, divorces, child custody disputes, criminal defense, if they or their family members were picked up for a DUI. Um, the contract specified that the city contributed about $1.5 a year into that fund. And interestingly, uh, that fund, of course, was put into place back in that 1988 contract. Um, there were uh, some some things that were some bribes uh, that were uh, taken as a result of that by the uh, police union president at the time, Harold Flamia. He was indicted, went to prison um, for that legal fund. And uh, I, I mean, what city provides legal defense for criminal activity or pays for right. officers' divorces? I mean, that you know that was then this is now right and so i thought that needed to go away if they wanted to contribute themselves to a fund you know out of payroll deduction that's fine but i didn't think the city should be paying for that so there were a lot of things controlled in that contract that really needed to change and discipline the process for discipline is another one um which and is still has we, to be dealt with it still has to be dealt with and uh, in this next contract because it was a priority for us. It was among our list of things we wanted changed, um, revising the healthcare model uh, and also changing and putting some guidance, guidelines in place for tuition reimbursement being uh, applicable to someone's uh, job and, and on a matching basis. Uh, for example, eliminating this legal fund, but uh, the discipline we did not get. And uh, I think the mayor and council, even the community had grown weary of the fight. It was uh, ugly and, and uh, pretty and vicious and, and long and became personal. Um, but they did that to try to uh, really villainize me that I was anti-police, which wasn't the situation at all. But um in any event, we were doing this uh, to safeguard the future of the city's financial position. And we wanted the chief to have greater authority in being able to discipline bad officers. And he doesn't have that full authority today. Um, he needs to have it. So that'll be, I believe, uh, a priority in the next contract, or it certainly should be. Is there a reason you think y'all were able to come to a, a mediated agreement and settlement with the police union, but not the firefighters union? Was Were the negotiation tactics different? I mean, was there differences to the contract that made it more viable, or was it a personality issue? Uh, I probably mostly a personality issue. They, uh, when we reached uh, the mediated settlement in June of uh, 2016, we had asked uh, the courts to order mediation. Um, when the unions, when both unions wouldn't come to the table and negotiate anymore, <clears throat> we filed um, a declaratory judgment action, as you know, a deck action, asking the courts for a ruling on the constitutionality of a 10-year evergreen clause. Their contracts also had a 10-year evergreen clause. So after the five-year contract ended, the terms and conditions continued for another 10 years or until you were able to negotiate. Now, I come from a labor family. My dad was a union member and leader. I worked in Michigan, one of the toughest labor states in yeah. the country. I have some experience in this area and I'd never seen a 10-year evergreen clause, come on. Um, and that was tying the hands of the city council that they couldn't make financial decisions beyond even when they're serving because they have eight year term limits uh, to serve as council members. So we thought to get them to the table, the risk of losing that completely, if, if the courts decided it was unconstitutional, uh, would get them to the table to negotiate. Instead, they doubled down 
and then started running those expensive TV ads against me. And there were many people in the community who said, we need to run our camp, you know, our commercials against them. And I said, no, that's good money after bad. We're not just stay focused. We'll ignore it. Of course, I didn't realize it was going to go on for years. Um, but, you know, when you say someone's bad, someone's bad, someone's bad, eventually people are like, gosh, they must be bad, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, there, were, there was some of that going on. But the courts then uh, ordered mediation, circuit court. Um, and I knew, I told the council, I thought uh, the lower courts would probably rule against us. Um, you know, it made it very difficult for them. They, too, were supported by police and fire. Sure. And, and uh, so I thought our best chance was to go to the Supreme Court. But uh, nonetheless, we were able to mediate a settlement with the police union. They, the fire union actually tried to campaign against that when it had to go to the vote of the police officers because they thought that the police union had given away too much. I thought we left money on the table. I wanted to get the person, the uh, disciplinary changes. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, uh, it was ratified by their membership and the city council approved it. We were done. And then the fire union just refused to negotiate. So I was doing some research into Harold Flamia, and it sounds like I'm sure you have heard the backstory more than I could ever hear, but it sounds like he was sort of one of the first union presidents to put the police, uh, the, the police officers into a political pact and really flex their political muscle. And it sounds like that was how he was able to create this just really advantageous uh, union contract because he created a pack. He started taking in money monthly. He created a big fund and he flexed that muscle. I mean, is that kind of the backstory on how that contract, you know, came to be in the late eighties? Yeah, I think you've summed it up pretty correctly. Um, he had been an officer who was shot in the line of duty, had multiple surgeries to uh, correct um, um, and improve his health. Um, and he wanted more for the officers. And I understand that, but it has to be affordable to the taxpayers. Yeah. And they, yes, they do flex their political muscle. In other states, uh, and especially common among the council manager form of government, city employees are not allowed to work on campaigns. In Texas, police and fire can work and endorse candidates. And so um, elected officials seek out their pack. Yeah. Um, and endorsements uh, by those by those unions, and and that's where that's the rub. Uh, and and they have a book uh, that their chief negotiator uh, put together. That's about it's in, entitled uh, "Union Power, Politics, and Conflict in the 21st Century," and it's basically about how to fight City Hall if they try to change wages and benefits. It's it it's reminiscent of Roy Cohen the way he taught political leaders in the Northeast, including Donald Trump, of to attack. I mean, he had a playbook by which you went about people that disagreed with you. And I was reading some about that book before you came on the show today, and it's it's very much like attack, escalate, and make it really uncomfortable for everybody. One interesting point is that book had an, uh, a chapter by Harold Flamia that was removed in the second edition after he had been prosecuted or pled guilty to the to the felony that's that's correct yeah it was pretty interesting and, and uh, the book itself also uh, talks about escalation is key you have to escalate and even fight cities uh, when they try to propose bond programs uh, that that's a way to get their attention tell tell the elected officials that they will oppose the bond program unless they get what they want in their contracts Jeez. and because they have money and they're organized, um, they, they have the ability to do that. I mean, I want people to read your book and I want them to go sort of get a flavor for all of this that they don't understand because we saw enough of it in the news, but if it's okay, I want to pivot a little bit and I want to talk to you about, you had to show such poise and also control to not fight back. Talk to me about sort of some of the leadership qualities, either you used or you learned in that big and public and nasty fight. Yeah. Um, if I had it to do over, I would have um, developed a more comprehensive communication plan uh, that could be used for the public. Um, it was uh, a, a bit uh, developed as we went <laughs> through yeah. the process. 
so I would have done that up front, had it adopted by the city council and then uh, been able to, to follow that more closely. Um, people would ask me to speak about, because the unions were putting out so much misinformation, uh, they'd ask for, okay, what's really going on? I would explain it and they'd say, well, why don't we know that? And so I started, for example, um, a letter that was going out to people who were contacting me asking that would go out monthly to say, here's where we are, here's what's happening. Um, and it grew to about 500 people uh, uh -huh. because so many people were asking about that. We should have been, I think, better organized in that regard. Now, one other thing um, that I did do, uh, previous to my being here in uh, this uh, position in San Antonio, uh, they had negotiated these contracts in a conference room at the lawyer, the labor lawyer who represented the city in his conference room. And in Texas, if you have, because we're a right to work state, if you have uh, collective bargaining um, negotiations, which are permitted under the local government, the Texas local government code, it has to be open to the public. Well, I'm sure they posted it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and followed the letter of sure. the law, but who's going to find the labor, the law office and the conference room. And right. go and do? So I knew that we'd have to have a public discussion because they'd had these contracts for 25 years. And so we needed to educate the public as to here's what's in, here's what we're trying to change. So I brought the negotiations to city hall and we invited the media and uh, my public information director, uh, Jeff Coyle, a former news person himself uh, from the private media. Um, he would meet with the media ahead of time to say, here's what we plan to cover today. Here's why. And because with TV, you know, they get a sound bite and they leave and they don't understand at all. And the unions objected to that. Um, they viewed that as, you know, throwing down the gauntlet that we were saying bad things about them. Not, not at all. What we were saying is here's what exists today. Here's what we'd like to change. Here's how we'd like to go about it. Uh, we're very methodical about it, but instead, um, that's why they they uh, went after us. I um, what I learned in this process, um, there was so much media and social media uh, became a problem as well. Uh, the unions had trolls that would follow any positive comments and then have you know five or ten negative comments dumped on it. It was all very organized. Uh, I told my staff, we're not going to read all that stuff. We're not going to follow it all. We're going to stay focused on what we want to do, educate those in the community who uh, need to know most about this, our elected officials and those in leadership positions, uh, and uh, stay the course and, and ignore that. Because, you know, while this was going on, this was one aspect of my job. Yeah. I mean, I was still running uh, the city operations for the entire organization. Uh, and so, um, you know, all of that negative stuff can really bring you down. Um, and I said, we've got to keep our heads on straight, stay focused on what we're trying to do. And so we will stay the course. I'm sure my family would say that I'd come home at night and just be like, oh, my gosh, how much longer can we do this? Uh, but um, we had to put on a strong public face and I needed to stay strong for my team. Uh, we collectively together decided this was important to do. I felt that because I was approaching the end of my city management career, I mean, I worked for 45 years in public um, city management, um, I, I could take this on and it would be the final financial legacy I'd leave uh, for the city changing the financial models of these contracts. So um, those were some of the things I learned in the process. And because of their political influence and because of the fact that our you know city council and mayor turnover a fair amount, you were kind of left leading this fight because you didn't have to worry about running for election. If if the city was to do this again, can you think of a better way for it to be done so that maybe our electeds aren't as worried about the force of the union and also so that there isn't one person like yourself who's kind of stuck carrying the water on a contentious issue? Yeah, well, I think there has to be agreement up front between the city manager and the mayor and council that we're in this together. Yeah. Uh, not that everyone will be unanimous in how to go about it. Um, if 
if you have uh, elected officials who don't have experience with labor unions, and let's face it, we're in a right to work state. So most of the elected officials in San Antonio, unless they were part of companies that had union employees in other places uh, and knew what it meant to deal with uh, collective bargaining, really don't understand the magnitude of it. Oftentimes I would hear from newly elected officials um, can't we just settle this? Can't we just be nice and settle this? Well, this isn't about, they, they clearly were not, they, the unions were clearly not being nice about it. They didn't want anything changed. They yeah. said that, or they said as much uh, when we began the process. Uh, but uh, I, I think there has to be uh, more alignment and participation by the elected officials to stand behind the executive staff as to here's what needs to be done. I had tremendous support from Mayor Nirenberg and the unions, of course, then ran a candidate sure. against them in the, in the last election. But in the end, something I learned very early in this career, and I learned it from my, from my father, um, you have to do what's right. Do what's right. And if it means uh, that uh, you're not reelected, and that's hard for elected officials to face that, um, then that, so be it. I mean, there's uh, there's an old saying, you know, do always do right. It will satisfy some and astonish the rest. And um, we we did this, and I dedicate the book to the residents of San Antonio. We did a lot together, and we did this for them. How much do you think you've got a quote by Robert Rivard in your book about it? Uh, I've had people reach out to me. I was told that before you got here, it was real backslapping, good old boy. How much of the attacks from from the unions um, and, and the, the police and fire do you think were related to the fact that you're a woman? Oh, I think quite a bit. Yeah. I I think if I were a man and from San Antonio, this would not they wouldn't have treated me this way. Because the uh, the attacks got particularly personal, almost. I mean, it was oh, they, an attempt to attack you in all ways. Yeah, they were. They were extremely uh, personal, very sexist. Uh, think about it. So our our departments are 90% men. Um, I know in the first negotiating session with the police department, um, I uh, the labor team included three women, uh, two attorneys and my HR director, all women. Yeah. And uh, the men asked for, you know, where's so-and-so who negotiated the last contract? And they said, we're here to negotiate. Uh, they caucused never came back that day. Um, so they weren't just rude to me. They were rude to, uh, the women who were on our team, uh, entirely. But, uh, so no, I don't think they would have done this to a man. Not at all. Uh, advice for women who are are dealing with similar things or advice for women who, who feel like they're going to face that if they take on a contentious issue. Yeah. Uh, thick skin, grow it. (laughs) (laughs) You have to do that, but also have a support system. I mean, I didn't do this on my own. Um, My team and I sat down and said, um, I think we should take this on. We discussed it thoroughly. Are we all on board? We supported one another. We were um, a tight knit unit working on this together with mayor and council support. Um, But uh, it it was tough to take on. But in the end, uh, we were successful in that success. Um, will be reaped by the residents of San Antonio. Yeah. Um, first book to write, will you write another one? <laughs> Not right away. <laughs> <laughs> I have been asked already, hey, we have ideas for, for another another book. Uh, but no, not not right away. Um, I want to uh, fully discuss this. I hope it's a history lesson for the residents of San Antonio, but also can be used as a guidebook for other city managers, elected officials, and communities across the country that are facing some of these very same challenges, because this could be any city, USA. I mean, it's great to, to, to read it, to track how the city changed over the last 15 years. I mean, the union battle is part of it, but it's, I mean, honestly, I didn't, I didn't find it overwhelming at all. It wasn't a book about a union battle. It was a book about changing a city. And for people like me, it's changing in ways of, oh, I've been to that park, or I know what pre-K for SA is. And so I thought it was really interesting just to get that background of the history. Um, your book tour will continue. I think you and Robert Rivard are going to do a second run at, at a question and answer. Is that Friday? Uh, it is tentatively scheduled for Friday at 11 a.m. I think he's uh, 
working through some of the technology issues because the site went down yesterday about halfway through the program. Uh, maybe it's because there were so many people that had registered for the yeah. event. I, I'm told there were more than 800 people. That's great. <laughs> um, on, on the site. So there's a, there's an awful lot of interest. And of course, the book's available in hardback, paperback, and uh, in the electronic version on Amazon. So it's available on Amazon. You mentioned something if somebody wants to get a, well, first of all, all Fine of the copy. proceeds, all the proceeds go to charities. And then if you want a signed copy, how can somebody get a signed copy? Yes, you can uh, either contact me if you know me, if we know each other, uh, please contact me. But um, the Twig Bookshop at the Pearl um, has signed copies. I've been madly signing uh, hundreds of books and uh, we've delivered several hundred to them already that are, are already committed, but we have more. So I'm happy to sign a book. Just contact the Twig. Okay, well. Cheryl, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for writing the book. It gave me so much background into a city that I really, I love. And honestly, I didn't start paying that much attention to local politics until the union fight because it was unavoidable. It was on billboards, it was TV, it was it was social media. So it kind of awoke my interest in local politics. And, and thank you for giving the background in this book. And I really, You're I enjoyed welcome. the read. So thank you for doing this. Good luck on your book. I hope it, I hope it sells a ton of copies and once COVID's over, I hope you'll let me buy you a drink and, and shake your hand and say thank you so much. I'll take you up on that. All thank right. you, Justin. Okay, Happy take to care. Be, here, be safe. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Alamo Hour. Uh, thank you so much to former city manager Cheryl Scully for joining us and talking about her book and her experience. And I encourage you to read the book. It's got a whole lot of background and history about San Antonio over the last 15 years. Uh, you hear a lot about the players. You hear a lot about the backstories on a lot of different things that we take for granted in the city. Uh, our wish list continues. Uh, I've reached out to Phil Hardberger. I hope I can get him on. I mean, the guy flew a single-engine plane across the Atlantic, uh, raced sailboats, and was largely largely responsible for getting um, Cheryl Scully to come join our city. So uh, until next time, um, thanks for joining us. And, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alamo Hour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.